you have your Bibles, turn to Malachi chapter 1. Malachi chapter 1. Have you ever offended somebody and wondered why they were upset with you? Do you ever take it lightly, almost as if, why can't they just get over it? It's not that big of a deal, is it? The truth is, what seems minor to you and me may mean something much more to them. And the truth is, so many times we come to God this very same way, wondering how we've actually offended him, wondering how he really does not like what we're doing. The truth is, the response that the priest had that Malachi is writing to and delivering this message from God is the response many of us have. A response of willful ignorance. How am I doing this, God? How have I really offended you? Their response is outright disrespectful, as if they are su surprised by this fact. Today we will continue in the book of Malachi as God responds to the priests and their offering brought before him. The people have returned to the land that they were exiled from and had grown stagnant in their worship. And as we began last week, God declares his love for them. He declares that he is sovereign over all of creation, over their very existence as a nation. And as we expounded on that, he is sovereign over all. And he spans in his sovereignty over all of time and space. God begins in verse 6 to compare the relationship to healthy human relationships. Verse 6, the first part. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence? Says the Lord of hosts to you priests who despise my name. You see, God, by telling the leadership what a good relationship looks like, explains that a good relationship shows respect to the one that is above them in honoring them. These leaders of the people were good at talking the talk, but they were not offering what God wanted. In fact, in Jewish custom, honoring a parent meant that you showed them dignity and respect. One particular area that this was shown is when a parent was older and could not take care of themselves any longer. Their children would be sure that they were clothed and fed. Think of Jacob and his boys going down to Egypt to make sure the family had food. A parent was not to be cursed after their death, as that is dishonoring of their dignity. A child was always to remain respectful in disagreement, and in their approach was one to be one that addressed their parents in the correct way. In fact, 
Rabbi Nachum Amsel points out in his article, How to Show Respect for a Parent, a Jewish View. He says this, This is proven in the law regarding a parent who does not observe a commandment. A child should point out to a parent if he or she is committing a sin. However, Maimonides codifies how a person should address a parent who violates the Torah. One may not say, Dad, you are wrong and doing a sin. But rather, let's look up the law together and see what it says. The standard code of Jewish law from the 16th century codifies this as well. Quoting Maimonides almost word for word, then adds an explanation. In order not to embarrass the parents. Therefore, even when disagreeing with a parent, which a child often has a right to do, he or she must do so in a dignified manner to preserve the parent's dignity. Honoring one's parents, that is, keeping their dignity, continues after their deaths. Not only by not cursing them, but also by mentioning them prominently in conversations. During the first year of mourning, one should say each time a parent's words are recalled, that is what my father, my teacher, said. And let me be an atonement for him or her. After the first year, a child adds the words, may his or her memory be a blessing each time the parent is mentioned. Boy, has that been lost in our culture today. It's been lost in Christian homes. Many Christians don't honor their parents this way. What God is essentially getting at here is that you show more dignity and respect many times for those around you, like your parents and your boss, than you do for me. God says, I am your father and your Lord and master. Where is my reverence? Where is the honor due to me? God says to the priests, you despise my name. Which means that you are careless or show contempt or disdain. The priests, like so many that come before God, play the ignorant card. Second part of verse 6. Yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? I think the question that they ask, we ask without admitting that we do. Where did I really go wrong, God? What's really going wrong in my life before you? And many times we ask it out of ignorance as if we don't know. Sometimes we truly don't know. But most times, I would say if you know your Bible, if you've walked in the faith any amount of time, it's a willful ignorance. Because we prefer not to be held accountable or what may, be play at, what, be at, what may be at play in our hearts is a conscience that's been seared. A conscience that's truly moved away from the standard of Scripture. 
Stephen Sharnock points out, to pretend to homage to God and intend only the advantage of self is rather to mock him than worship him. You see, despising God's name was offering God defiled food on the altar. In verses 7 and 8, here's what it says. You offer defiled food on my altar, but say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying the table of the Lord is contemptible. And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts. You see, when God gives them an answer, they aren't satisfied with it and ask for more clarification. There are a lot of believers today when, when God speaks clearly on something in the text, they argue that it's not really clear. They need more clarification. That's not really what it means. When Jesus speaks of marriage and tells you that it's a man and a woman, there's nothing else he means by it. And when you and I are arguing, no, maybe he doesn't really mean that, we're arguing with the author of the whole thing. You see, they may very well have become so casual in their worship that it no longer bothered them how they presented themselves and the offerings to God. Ask yourself this question and be honest with yourself. Do I show more respect for others than I do God? Do I show more respect to others than I do God? And then take a snapshot of your last week. How much of your week was spent trying to please others at the expense of God? Would you be more willing to do for others what you don't care to do for God? Let's be honest, sometimes we assume that in doing something for someone, automatically that means we're doing it for God. Have you ever done that? Well, I did this for that person, and that automatically means that I'm loving God the way I ought to. And there is some truth to that, as we talked about in 1 John, that God wants us to love our brothers and sisters, right? The problem with that assumption is this, though. We automatically think that if we are giving something to others, we are giving something to God. Those are not the same thing, necessarily. There are two great commandments, and they are separate, by the way. They are linked, but they are separate. Unfortunately, many of us jump to the second one as an excuse for not doing the first one. I think you may have a guess as to where I'm going with this. Let's look at the text in Matthew 22, where Jesus is questioned by a lawyer trying to trap him because he's embarrassed some of the Sadducees, who were the more liberal scholars of that time. By the way, Pharisees had some good legal counsel, so they had a lawyer speak on their behalf and ask the question. Matthew 22, 34 through 40, listen to this. But when the Pharisees heard 
that he, that's Jesus, had silenced the Sadducees because he called them out on the fact that the resurrection is true, it's real, and the Pharisees opposed them on that, and the Pharisees were right, that there, there, there is a resurrection. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. The Pharisees essentially were trying to trap Jesus into giving a priority to one of the commandments out of the many scores that they had. Seeing which one he put above all of them. And Jesus summarizes it in two points. Number one, love God with everything you have and love your neighbor as yourself. There are two separate commandments though. They are not one and the same. Most try to do the second, loving their neighbor as themselves, without trying to do the first one correctly. Many, in an attempt to love the world, oppose God. Many, in an attempt to reach people with the gospel, blaspheme the name of Jesus before them. Because their priorities are out of order. You and I will do all sorts of things, jumping through all sorts of hoops to reach others if God is not the priority first. Today's idea of loving others disregards God's standard of Scripture many times. Calling out sin in culture is considered hateful by so many so-called Christians. And if it is called out, we just want someone else's sin to be called out, not ours. It's loving to call someone else's out, but not mine. That's why one of the reasons why you see what's going on right now is, yes, there's a lot of abuse that's gone on in the church, so a lot of people sp speak against that, but then they tolerate the very sin that that person perpetrated as well. All of it needs to be called out. The sin of abortion is tolerated by so many so-called pro-life groups who would never come right out and say that they ever want that to completely end because their money would walk, would walk out the door. They'd never want to ban abortion. It's their money-making machine. They get to spew a bunch of pro-life junk out there to everybody pretending that they really care when all the while they're just sitting there taking donations. If they put their money where their mouth is, they'd want to ban abortion, not just have it partially eliminated. They would never come right out and ban the practice of child sacrifice at the altar of convenience because their bottom line would be affected. The phrase, you don't know what they've gone through, has become an excuse for every sin imaginable in our culture today. 
Christians, instead of standing with the standard of God's word, will argue with statements. I don't think Jesus would be opposed to this. Insert sexual perversion. No, Jesus didn't say anything about incest and pedophilia. I'm pretty sure he's against them. He doesn't explicitly state anything. He says that it'd be better for a millstone to be hung around your neck if you offend these little ones. That's what he says. It'd be better if you drowned than if you did something to a child. This is how people twist the scriptures today. They do exactly what these priests did in their offering to God. And what's even more disgusting is how many churches promote filth God was opposed to. All in the name of worship that Sunday. Many of us plead ignorance just like these priests did. Because our worship has grown cold and outright rebellious. God is not the one we respect. Love is love. Don't tell me what God thinks. Anybody that uses that statement that's a Christian does not understand the God of the Bible. And they've borrowed from the world to try to tell God what he thinks. Pastors are afraid to lose congregation members over calling out their sin. Telling them the truth about their rebellion against God and his word. And I will be really clear about this church. There are things in this church that I need to be more honest with some of you on. And this is an area I'm repenting in today. Yes, it's hard being a pastor of a smaller church, but there are certain things in our, our church that should never be tolerated, period. Sins that need to be called out, things that need to be dealt with. And it's not because uh, we don't want what's right for you. We want what God wants. Some of the hardest things in our lives are the things that we have to do in order to get rid of sin. Your marriage can't thrive until you get rid of that stuff that's really blocking what God could do, could do. Your relationship with others can't thrive when you've got sin you're holding on to internally inside. We as a church can't really reach the world very well if we have con contentions between us. God simply tells them, when you offer things I'm completely against, blind, lame, and sick, that is contemptible and evil. I want you to understand something, believer, that you and I in the New Testament in Romans chapter 12 are told to be the sacrifice offered to God. What we offer is ourselves, and what we offer many times is not pleasing to him. God is so direct here, he tells them, try to give that to your governor and see how that goes. See if he approves. If you gave your time to others that you give to God, would they really have a good relationship with you? If you gave your passion and energy to others that you give to God, would that be a good relationship? What was to be presented was a lamb without blemish and without spot. But that was completely disregarded. 
In fact, it wasn't even close. They were offering blind, lame, and sick to God. And God calls that evil. Believers, stop thinking that you and I are just a little off. Sometimes we are way off. We're not even close to what God wants. These priests should have known better. They had the law. Believer, we ought to know better. We have the whole thing. We have the Bible, all of it. If God's word is not a priority, we will offer God things he absolutely detests. All the while thinking that he is pleased with us somehow. You see, Malachi tells the people with sarcasm, how does it actually make sense to ask for a blessing while offering the evil that you have? In verse 9 he says this, But now entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us while this is being done by your hands. Will he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts. Isn't that something? They wanted God's blessings, all the while offering him what he absolutely abhors. We want God's blessing in our lives and in our families, all the while refusing to offer him what he deserves of our time, energy, resources, money. We have every excuse not to give him his due, don't we? Too tired, too much going on. I have all this, and God, let me take care of this first, and then I'll give you your due. And how many of us have promised that for years? We expect God to be pleased when we are offering what Cain did, unlike his brother Abel. In Malachi 1, verses 10 through 11, listen to what he says. Who is there even among you who would shut the doors so that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain? I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from your hands. From the rising of the sun even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. In every place incense shall be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. What God is essentially saying here is that if only there was someone with integrity who would just shut the doors on the whole thing and you stop pretending that you're worshiping me. Have some integrity about the fact that you're not offering what I want. Cut out the pretense and worship. We bring something to God instead of the best. We think that's enough. I'll give you the leftovers, Lord. I'll give you whatever is left of my week. Not all of me. Our view of God is not one of sovereign and king, but we rather think we worship a God who seems to have everlasting patience for whatever we'd like to do. We can just continue as we have in the past. 
You see, they offer lukewarm worship as we do. In fact, we feel bad for a day or two after a sermon and then go right back to our old ways. The Word of God confronts us. Oh, God, that's me. You're right. I need to do this. Uh, give it a couple days. We're right back to the old habit we had. Back to the same routine of passionless and heartless worship. And it bothers us that other people are passionate. We're like, man, they're weird. We all agree that we like the Psalms, right? And David's Psalms that he writes. That's a man of passion. That's a man that really loved God. Man of passion that actually had major flaws and sinned grievously, yes. But a man with passion for the Lord nonetheless. John Bunyan says this, Take heed of driving so hard after this world as to hinder thyself and family from those duties towards God, which thou art by grace obliged to, as private prayer, reading the scripture, and Christian conference. It is a base thing for men so to spend themselves and families after this world as that they disengage their heart to God's worship. We need to be careful what we prioritize. As John Bunyan points out here, we have so many other things we can get wrapped up in at the expense of the worship of God. And we're not just talking about church on Sunday mornings. Worship is all of life. Even though there are particulars in gathering together with believers, that is what Scripture calls us to. God tells them he will not accept what they're offering. And yet he will still be glorified among the nations. And will receive the honor that is due him. I don't know if you remember this text in the New Testament, but it really stands to what says here that if we're silent, the rocks will cry out. God is still going to get his glory one way or another, believer. It may not be through what we offer, but he will get his glory. God is declaring that worship has and will extend to others and is happening among the Gentiles. Even back then, he was making this proclamation. God recaps what he has just said with a curse pronounced on the one who disregards what he promised before God. In Malachi 1, verses 12 through 14, here's what it says. But you profane it in that you say... The table of the Lord is defiled, and its fruit, its food is contemptible. You also say, oh, what a weariness, and you sneer at it, says the Lord of hosts, and you bring the stolen, the lame, and the sick, thus you bring an offering. Should I accept this from your hand, says the Lord? But cursed be the deceiver who has in his flock a male and takes a vow, but sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. You see, God is recapping their pathetic display of worship 
by expanding into their heart's attitude and saying, there's more to this. You sneer. Essentially, all you do is what most of us know as a parent if we've ever told our child to do something. It doesn't even take a word. Hey, I need you to go do this. That's what's described here. And what he's saying is that this is what they're offering me. This is what you're offering me, priests, nation of Israel. Question for us is that what we're offering God? God wants you to do this in your life. He wants you specifically to live this way. <sighs> really? I have to love that person. How many times have I already done this? I don't know. This is too much. It's humorous, but it's serious, isn't it? Because that's our heart's attitude sometimes. We take it lightly that we don't have the right approach to God sometimes. It's essentially the attitude one has as a child when they don't want to do something their parents tell them to do. And it's clearly demonstrated with just their breath. They don't even say a word. Believer, God wants you to worship him with everything you have. As one preacher put it, God wants the fat portions. Finances, abilities, and time. So finances, we don't talk much about finances here at the church because we truly do believe that God wants you to be a cheerful giver and to give because he's impressed it on your heart to give, not out of guilt, but out of delight. We give because God gave us more than we could ever want when he gave us Christ. We have a box in the back for tithes and offerings. We don't want you, we don't necessarily pass the plate in this church. But we do need the resources to continue as a church. And you can also give online, by the way, if you're watching. If this ministry has in any way blessed you. You see, most people's minds have been made up whether or not they will give that day or not. Before you go to a restaurant, you know what you're probably going to spend. At least you have an estimate. It's that way with God's house as well. We want you to give because God matters, not because pastor told you to. Maybe finances are tough, and you think giving is the last thing on your mind. Understand that God wants you to be a wise steward of your money so that you can give. Living beyond your means will make it difficult for you and I to give as God would want us to. And unfortunately, we need to be careful because we can be offering God completely the thing that he does not want. Our leftovers. Another area is abilities. You see, God has given every person in this church a gift, an ability to be used. A talent that can be used to present before him. And the question is this, are you offering it to him in service? Or do you just come in 
sit down, listen to the sermon, and you go back to your home? Or do you serve in the church that God has given you? So many get caught up in analysis paralysis in, in how God can use them. So they don't think they can really serve or help in any way. So they keep overthinking it and never doing anything. They don't quite know where they fit, nor do they even attempt. You may be inclined to teaching, as some of you are, and you help in those areas. You may be inclined to help with technology or even music, counseling others. Are you using those gifts that God's given you? If you are, good. Praise God for that. We're grateful to have your gift in this community. Some are looking for a clear verse speaking to their particular skill. And that's not the way that we should operate. Um, there's no verse in the Bible about laying down floor rubber in the gym. But we still need your help with that. It needs to be done. The question you need to ask yourself in your abilities and your gifts, are you using them to serve God and others or merely just to make a living? I'm going to challenge some of you on this. Some of you have incredible gifts God's given you in the workforce. And those skills can be used in the church. Are you using them? Some waste the opportunity to serve God because they're only focused on themselves when it comes to their abilities. And some of that can be one of two extremes. One is, I don't know that anybody could use what I'm doing. I don't know that I really can offer all that much. Seems like everything's taken care of. Or the other extreme, that's beneath me. I'm not doing that. They lack perspective to see where God could use them in building the body up. You see, the truth is, complaining is an ability we all have, right? Unfortunately, some of us are experts at it. PhD in complaining. But that's not the gift that God wants you to use in this church. See, how you can help step in with the abilities that God has given you, believer. Take the time and see where is it that I can plug in more and be a help in this church. See, some of you, you're just very invitational. You love inviting people. Let's work on that. How can we invite more people? Some of you are like, man, I'm scared of that kind of stuff. Let me help somewhere else. The bottom line is we all should be involved with what God's given us. And the last part is time. Time is a valuable resource, right? If it is not paid attention to, it is wasted. In fact, time once gone cannot be retrieved. No redo. Again, no do-over. There are many of us that have wasted so many years living in anticipation of one day using our time in service to God. Believer, that day is today if you have not done so. Don't keep telling God you're going to give him your time. Make it a point to repent today if that is you. Stop waiting to have more time. 
Use what's been given to you wisely. How much time could you have given in the things that God cares for? Time with your spouse and kids. And not talking about them to others, but actually time with them. Time and worship before God instead of carnal pursuits. Just taking the time to take in what God says. Saying, you know what? Let's, let's read together. Kids, let's, let's get in the Word together. There's always time to watch that movie. Nothing wrong with that. But if we've neglected God, we've done a disservice to our kids in teaching them what God would want. Think of the time in caring for others that we could have spent instead of only caring about ourselves. Did you know that one of the tools that God uses in the Bible is that the very things that you've been comforted with, you are to comfort others? And yet so many believers stay stagnant, isolated, and they are that way many times because they haven't done anything for anybody else for a long time. Their number one priority has always been them. It's not God, it's not others. They're missing on both of those points. Which is one of the other reasons I bring this up. Time in fellowship instead of isolation. Believer, listen, the very thing that keeps you isolated is lack of fellowship many times. The reason why people struggle with depression and suicide as seriously as they do is because they don't have anyone else around. And they're not in fellowship with other faithful believers that can help them with that, that can pray with them, that can support them through hard times in life. Believer, let me tell you as a pastor, there are many times you don't see the background. I struggle as well. And there are certain people I go to and I break down sometimes when I need to. Because the truth is, I'm, a, I'm just a man, made of the same thing you are. I never understood what anxiety was until the last couple years. I used to think, what's anxiety? I don't understand all these people that battle anxiety. What does it be worried about? God's got it under control. Huh. Well, <laughs> in practical, personal life, it's not always the case. Especially when God shows you certain things in your life that you thought you had under control and you don't. Think of it this way, believer. Imagine the time that you could use for the kingdom of God. Because the truth is, time, unlike finances and abilities, can never be retrieved. You can't ever get it back. You don't get another shot at it. If you're a parent, your kids are going to be your kids for a certain period of time. And then they're adults. You'll be a certain period of time that you're a grandparent. I remember having this conversation just this last year with Luke. We were talking about school and omnibus, and I don't know how many of you know this, I don't want to share all the details, but when Pastor Rizzo had his health scare, 
it resets some things for me as a pastor. I remember telling Luke, as much as you can, take what you can from Pastor Rizzo and Omnibus. We don't know how much time we have on this earth. We don't. Think of the time we should spend in praying and encouraging others instead of complaining about others. Believer, the very flaws that you see in me, that I see in you, should not be the only thing we think about. We've known each other so well, some of us, and you've seen me in my worst, and I've seen you in your worst, but the reality is, brothers and sisters, I love you. I want us to one day stand before God, and we present, and he says, we've done well. Oswald Chambers says this, worship is giving God the best that he has given you. Be careful what you do with the best you have. Whenever you get a blessing from God, give it back to him as a love gift. Take time to meditate before God and offer the blessing back to him in a deliberate act of worship. If you hoard a thing for yourself, it will turn into spiritual dry rot as the manna did when it was hoarded. God will never let you hold a spiritual thing for yourself. It has to be given to him that he may make it a blessing to others. I read a post this last week, and I typically don't care for a lot of Facebook posts, to be honest, as far as some of the superficial stuff you see online. But this post got my attention, and I'll say as a pastor, it even convicted me quite a bit. It said this, questions to ask yourself before you start complaining about your church. If the church service depended solely on my worship, how full would the worship service be? If the church had to depend solely on my faithfulness, how faithful would my church be? If the church had to survive solely on my prayer life, how much prayer would be going on? If the church could only go as deep as my relationship with God goes, how deep would my church be? If we had to make it on my Bible reading and knowledge, how knowledgeable would my church be? If we have to go by my offerings, how big would the church outreach be? If the preaching solely depended on my response to the preaching, how responsive would my church be? If it all depended on me, what would happen? Before you start complaining, make sure that you're the first one praying, the first one worshiping, the first one reading and studying, the first one responding, the first one fasting, the first one faithful, the first one giving. Remember, we can't complain if we're not being what we say we want. So church, in closing, what is your attitude to worship? What is your attitude to worship? Are you casual about church? 
like it's just a thing to do every week. It's Sunday, got to do it, get the kids ready for church. Or is worship really a part of your life? You see that every single day, that I walk before God. Are you just tired or bored when it comes to serving God? I'll tell you right now, I wasn't bored this last week. Remember, believer, you are to offer yourself as the sacrifice in Romans 12, as Scripture says. If God is boring to you, then you've gotten too casual in your worship. If serving God is you constantly complaining about everything going on, then your worship stinks. And you're the very lame, sick, and blind sacrifice that's being presented to God. Does God honoring God matter more to you than honoring others? You see, many of us, we're quick to help someone else as soon as something comes up, and that's very good. That's God calling us to do those things. But when he calls, do you answer? Or do you push him aside and say, I'll get to you later, Lord. I know you want me to do this, but I'm going to do this later, not right now, like later, not now. It doesn't mean that we don't honor others. It just means that we give God his due, which is, as we just spoke of, right? First priority. First. With this in mind, there are things in this church that need to be addressed if we're to become a healthy church, as God would want us to be. Believer, I as a pastor cannot worry about what others think over what God's word says. And as time goes on, as God gives us opportunities to deal with things that he wants us to, and we have, we've dealt with quite a few things over the years. We need to be reminded once again that it's God that matters. And what he says matters more than what we feel. John Owen, in closing, said this, the foundation of true holiness and true Christian worship is the doctrine of the gospel, what we are to believe. So when Christian doctrine is neglected, forsaken, or corrupted, true holiness and worship will also be neglected, forsaken, and corrupted. <laughs>